0: Now, on today's episode, we are going to be talking about category management in retail. And this is actually a very interesting area. If any of you is interested in retail and would like to own a business and think about making sure that it's running well, is generating a lot of profit, then yes, this could be a very interesting role to consider. To help us understand this space, our guest today is Ariel Lee, and she is a former category manager from CVS Health. And for any of you who is not familiar with cvs cvs is a very popular retail pharmacy here in the united states and you can find their stores in pretty much any city across the country and if you look at their wikipedia page cvs was ranked number seven on the fortune 500 list in 2016 and number 18 on the fortune 500 global list so yes it's a very big company and uh, coming back to Ariel, she has a bachelor's in neuroscience from Cornell University and an MBA in marketing and strategy from Tepper School of Business, Carnegie Mellon University. So I hope you enjoyed today's discussion and find it helpful. And with that, now let's get into the discussion with Ariel. Ariel, hello, welcome to the show. Good morning, Sonali. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you so much for making time for this. And how is Sunday morning treating you? Um, Not too bad so
1: far. It looks bright and sunny outside here in San Francisco. Couldn't ask for a more beautiful day.
0: It is a nice day. It's been raining so much for the last few days, but uh, fairly sunny for the last few days, so that's good. Um, I, before, so I'm really excited about today's discussion, but before we talk about category management, I heard recently that since you left CVS, which was um, in 2015, Correct. 2015, right. You've been traveling since then, like traveling around the world.
1: Yeah, you know, this is one of those things that I always wanted to do in my life. And I've been fortunate enough to have both the time and resources to do it. So I've actually been traveling around the world off and on again for a little over a year and a half at this point. And I got to say, it's definitely one of the best decisions I've ever made.
0: I mean, that sounds so cool. So can you tell us a little bit about, like, so which countries did you go to? And and actually, before you even talk about that, like, what prompted this travel and what kind of travel did you do?
1: <laughs> well, I suppose this is a, somewhat of an introduction to my role at CVS because I actually left because, first of all, I wanted a breather from the corporate world. And secondly, I just felt that, you know, coming from merchandising and marketing, there's a lot to be said about leaving the office and connecting with people in very different situations in life. So, those were my two biggest motivators. Um, the, I went to, gosh, let's see, the countries I went to, besides your typical North American, you know, Mexico, Canada, I did a trip to Iceland, Ireland, the UK, which includes Britain and Northern Ireland, um, Belgium, France, the Netherlands, Germany, Uh, Czech Republic, Prague, gosh, um, Taiwan, which is where I'm originally from, Mm -hmm. China, which is where my family's from, and several more I'm sure I'm uh,
0: leaving off the list right now. (laughs) That sounds incredible. Wow. And were you sort of constantly hopping from one place to the other then? Did you come back to the U.S. in between?
1: Yeah, I actually came back home in between. So um, these trips were designed also around my fiance's schedule. So we would go in little bursts. For example, one of my cousins got married to someone in the Netherlands. So that prompted most of the European trip. And a lot of it, you know, going home to see family was a trip in itself to Asia. So there was a lot
0: of back and forth. Interesting. And was it more of a a backpacking kind of trip, or like what kind of what kind of trips were these? That's a pretty good question. I think the
1: backpacking and uh, hosteling phase of my life is officially over. (laughs) So um, there was a lot of Airbnb and staying with uh, family involved. But in general, if you look hard enough. Through you know, Hotels. dot com, which is what I use primarily, it keeps everything pretty reasonable for a two person trip.
0: Hmm. Which that's how I did it. Yeah. That's inc- I mean, I feel that I can do an entire episode with you just on your travel trip. <laughs> <laughs> I Maybe mean, we can you do that in the future. Yeah, we'll absolutely. But that sounds like that is something that I've always really wanted to do: is that take an extended period of time out and just travel. There was this thing that I heard about very recently it's uh it's called a pilgrimage but it's it's you know anyone can do it and you basically walk from yeah and i'm forgetting the names of the place also but essentially it's like a two two months long walk that you can do from point a to point b and it sounds really really exciting but i just think that you know if you have a regular corporate job it's hard to take two months out so it's a little bit of an issue that way so it was good like you yeah. were you this is something that you were planning for a long time this was something I was planning towards the end of
1: my role at CVS, uh, which is related to a lot of transitions regarding my family. So it mm. was perfect timing. I, I think it was a once in a
0: lifetime shot. <laughs> yeah. All right. So uh, moving on to category management then. So uh, Ariel, why don't you first tell us a little bit just about your career path and what made you try out category management in retail?
1: Yeah, I'd love to. So, I want to first give the disclaimer that my career path is a little bit different than what you might find typically for a category manager. So, I started out, I did my undergrad degree at Cornell in neurobiology and behavior. And I started out by working in pharma and in the drug industry doing drug development. And after a while, for that, I wanted to see more of the business side, but I think the lack of a business degree kind of prevented that transition. So I went to the Tepper School of Business at Carnegie Mellon to obtain my MBA. After my MBA, I was recruited directly into CBS, where I first started as an analyst in the pharmacy operations department, and then I worked my way up from there. So starting by being the person doing all the analyses for pharmacy, which is trying to figure out how to keep them running smoothly and profitably, I got promoted to a senior consultant role And then after being there for about a year or so, I was tapped by a a VP at the merchandising department at CVS, where he was a former McKinsey guy and he was looking for people with fresh ideas and a lot of motivation to change the way uh, retail happens at CVS. So I was invited to interview, had to take a bunch of exams and pass them and ended up in my role there ever since.
0: Oh interesting so it it wasn't like you got into category management directly or even your role sounds like a little bit unique. It was more an opening that that happened to be there at c v s due to this McKinsey guy, and then he you knew him from your past work and then he asked you to try it out
1: actually, I did not meet my v p until I applied internally within c b s okay so i I suppose. I will have to admit that coming from a non-traditional background is a bit of an uphill battle during the application process, but it is very much of a strength on the job, just because coming from a neuroscience and psychology background means that I have a lot more insight to how consumers behave and why. And I think that has really been a strength to the way that I applied. And I think that part of the reason that I was recruited I'm not sure you'd have to ask my VP is simply because um, most folks that come in, they start in a pretty predictable path. For instance, you come in probably as an inventory manager or um, a forecasting person, or you could even come through the pricing or planogram channels. Then you work your way up until you're familiar enough to take on an assistant category manager role where you have parts of the responsibility of a CM, which is also called a buyer in other areas. And then as you learn the ropes, you get more and more of the PL and more and more of the
0: strategic work added
1: until then you hit the. Uh, category manager position. I see.
0: All right. So you said a lot of things there that I, will, I have questions on. So I, So I think to put all of this in context, what is traditional versus non-traditional background? Why is it important to know how people behave? Maybe you can first give us a slight flavor of what is the role of a category manager? And then I think all of these things will make more sense. So
1: a category manager at CVS is very much like a small business entrepreneur that runs a business line from within the company. So in other instances in retail, they're frequently called a buyer, but in this case, the term category manager refers to not only a buyer, but somebody with very significant P&L responsibility. So I would say that my role can be broken up into three major components. So the first is the financial, the second would be the strategic, and the third would be the executional. So in terms of financials, this would cover all the P&L metrics, for example, Sales, contribution margin, and um, significant costs. There's also a financial forecasting aspect because CVS is publicly run. We have to present our forecasts um, quarterly to Wall Street, and I did that um, monthly for the VP. There's also quarterly business reviews and also negotiating contracts with our vendors. In terms of our strategy, um, a big component of this is managing our supplier partnerships to, to figure out which suppliers are the best ones to partner with CVS and to figure out how we can maximize the business relationship with both of them. There's a lot of SKU selection involved, uh, figuring out how to differentiate and improve our customer experience. There's also you know pricing and promotions, figuring out special offers, and getting go-to-market strategy Um covered. Um, I'm the person who directs these for my businesses. And in terms of execution, the best one that comes to mind, of course, is launching new products. It's to make sure that um, inventory and operations are running smoothly at the highest level and to make sure that the planogram design and the promotional channels and all of our store brand products look great and in the unlikely event to manage product
0: recalls. I see. Okay, that's a lot of stuff. So very quickly, Uh, What was the category that you were managing at CVS? Sure. So within CVS, just to
1: give you some background, there are four major divisions. There's uh, beauty, personal care, there's general merchandise, grocery, and I believe seasonal. So I was within beauty and personal care, and I had three categories um, responsible for, for, for what I did. So they were deodorants, which is kind of a commodity CPG item. Had hosiery and hair appliances, which the last one meaning it's something you use for your hair that either has a power source or a plug, and that includes blow dryers, um, curling irons, but not hair ties or hair brushes.
0: <laughs> okay, that's an interesting uh, distinction. So anything that requires electricity, then okay. So um, so for these three categories, deodorants, hosiery, and hair appliances. You were the one who was responsible for the financial aspects. So whether that is the PNL, the cost, the forecasting, you mentioned uh, negotiating contracts, then the strategies of figuring out which deodorants, for example, you should stock, um, which queue, which what would be the well actually we'll get to it. So like which deodorants and uh which what should be the pricing and promotions, and then of course execution for all of this. So in, in this background, you mentioned that you ha- you really need to understand how do people behave, because that can be a big uh, advantage to doing well in this role. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So
1: the first thing I did was understand the distinction between these third uh, three categories, because they're actually given to CMs based on their total revenue dollars rather than the con- direct connection between both. So for example, for deodorants, this is a very commoditized product that's generally seen as a need. So people tend to be more price sensitive and there's a lot of branding involved here. So when it comes to selecting supplier partners, I had a handful of the really big guys everyone's familiar with. So for example, Unilever and P&G were some of my top clients, but I also had very niche products that had maybe one or two SKUs that go on the shelf. So these led to some pretty interesting and very different types of negotiating. And for um, hosiery and hair appliances, most consumers come in to CVS for a convenience need because maybe you're on vacation and you forgot your favorite curling iron. Mm. And so we actually have, if you look at the shelves, exclusivity agreements with our partners because in these cases, it's not so much of the sales volume and demand that drives these sales, but it's the margin that matters most to CVS. So the negotiations for these vendors are consequently very different.
0: So can you talk more about that? Like, why is it that the volume matters less than the margins?
1: Right. So, for example, if you take one of my formerly best-selling items, it was the Curl Secret, it was... um, a hairstyling product by Conair that curls your hair. It's it's an as-seen-on-TV product. It costs about $70. So if you think back to the last time you went into a CVS or a Walgreens or Rite Aid, you probably didn't spend $70 on your total purchase, excluding prescriptions. Now, you probably didn't spend $70 on everything together, let alone on one item. So in this case, we know that people who are coming in have a pretty inelastic demand, which is that If they do come in, they're willing to pay whatever they'd like Mm. for this item. They're probably not going to be upsold, as in a buy one, get one discount is probably not going to benefit us as CVS. And so I think in this case, managing the margin means a lot because when the consumer does come in, which is hard to predict, you want to make sure you do the best you can for the business in that situation.
0: Oh, I see. Okay, this is interesting. So it's not so much that you're fighting that, you know, uh, will they buy this or that? As you said, it's more of a last minute, like, hey, I really need this. And so they're in, they do want to make the purchase. Now you want to get make the most out of that situation. Correct. So
1: that's one example. I would say in contrast for hosiery, where we also have exclusivity. If you think to the women, In your lives that you know that are about millennial age or maybe Gen X, you might notice that people are wearing a lot less pantyhose or hosiery. This doesn't include leggings or um, jeggings, for example, but people are wearing less pantyhose than they used to because this market is slowly declining. I think it's a matter of time before it's almost phased out. It's a legacy from our parents' generation and our grandparents. So in this case, um, a lot of the promotions we are doing are designed to uh, maximize margin, again, because when the consumer comes in who actually really wants this product, we mm-hmm. want to make sure we most make the most of the interaction.
0: I see. Okay. And so this is where knowing really well what the consumer mindset is, is very, very helpful. Exactly. Okay. And so you said that your background in neuroscience was a non-traditional background. Like what, can you give us an example of what is a traditional background for a category manager? Sure. So
1: from many of the people I've seen at CVS, I think a lot of them started with an undergrad business degree or some type of a marketing degree. And they demonstrated an interest in retail and merchandising early on. So a very common route to enter is uh, demand planning or inventory management. So they come in and they help understand the nature of the different products, how they sell, you know, how seasonal they are, and to understand the business from the inner workings out. I think once they get a foothold there, some of them move into the visual merchandising, which might mean planogramming, which is figuring out how to optimize the way items are presented on the shelves. Or they might go straight into an assistant category manager role, which is to support the category managers while they're learning the ropes.
0: I see. Okay. So it's a much more of a business background, which is the typical background. Um, Is is it generally like a post MBA kind of role then?
1: I would say assistant category manager or CM roles tend to be post MBA roles if you didn't come from a merchandising background before. Yes.
0: Okay. And if you did come with a merchandising background?
1: I think then it depends on how much relevant experience you have and how well you're able to convince the hiring team of that.
0: Yeah, so actually, it will be helpful if you can tell us a little bit about the hierarchy or, like, you know, what are what are the various levels in a typical team? So you are the category manager. Uh, is there anyone above you? Is there anyone below you? Yeah.
1: Let me start with a top-down approach. I think that might be more helpful. Mm -hmm. So at CVS in particular, we start with uh, Larry Merlo, who's the CEO of the entire company, pharmacy, everything, and retail included. So the next step down from him is um, the president of CVS Retail. So that includes everything you see in the brick and mortar store, I believe. And from her down is the senior vice president of merchandising. So she is in charge of my entire division and she is who all of my managers, VP bosses report up to. And she is the first step at the executive level. So below that, there were four VPs. So for each of the divisions I described, beauty, personal care, and so on. From the VP level, then it goes um, each VP at CVS has two DMMs. So they're called divisional merchandising managers. They're the equivalent of a senior director in level. Mm-hmm. And each, each uh, senior category manager or category manager reports into these uh, senior directors. Okay. And so these are the people I work with.
0: Gotcha. So a very quick question then. So let's say, let's take the example uh, that you shared that you have to figure out which suppliers to work with. So let's say you find some new deodorant company and you, you really like it as the category manager at CVS. What would you have to do to actually have that show up at on CVS shelves?
1: Sure. So assuming I already really like this partner, I would say then the trick is really to go to the shelf and figure out who needs to be taken out so that my new supplier can be brought in and how many SKU items. So how many product variants Mm. need to be removed for this item to be there. So part of what I do is a strategic analysis to see, you know, does my new supplier bring in either a new delivery form or something else that's that the consumer really likes and also to justify what my forecast of their performance will be and to compare it to a weaker skew that I think will not do as well in the next month or quarter or year. That's the the simple big picture version of the thought process.
0: No, that's helpful. And so are you then the final decision maker or you'll have to run it by the director that you're working with?
1: Hmm. So, with any company, I suppose no one is officially the single decision maker. Uh-huh. So what happens is I get to I am the front line for negotiating with all the partners and vendors and I finalize my my strat- strategies. So then in that case, my I have to sell that idea to my DMM, my senior director. And then sell that idea to the VP as well as the senior VP. Gotcha. So usually if they agree with it, it's a simple, all right, let's do it. If yeah. not, then it's a bit more of a, uh, a sales pitch internally.
0: I, yeah, no. And, you know, this is the same at every company. It's just to understand how the role works, because in almost all roles, you know, once you're the one who, ha- who is sort of championing the idea, but then you have to uh, make sure that everyone else is on board and make the case for it. Um you and generally for category managers, uh, are you responsible for a certain territory, or are you looking at CVS globally, or are you looking at a certain region in North America? How does it work? So
1: for CVS, I I know CVS acquired something called honorfree in Brazil, which is a chain of. I think a chain of drugstores down there and they own Navarro as well, which is a chain of Hispanic, um, pharmacy convenience stores in the Latin America areas of the United States. Um, so what I cover is all CVS stores and acquisitions in North America, which comes okay. out to 7,800 stores I'm also indirectly responsible for the e-commerce section, which is CVS.com and what's sold on the mobile app. But you could say that all CMs at CVS, are they manage chain-wide.
0: Gotcha. But that's really, that can get very complicated, right? Because the assortment that you think will sell in, let's say, San Francisco might be very different from what you think might sell in New York.
1: Yeah, that's a really great point. So of course, I have a whole team of people that helps me figure out this issue. So for example, um, we have a lot of stores, some are much bigger than the others. And so if you walk into some stores, you'll see much more product in a large footprint flagship store than you would in some small rural Midwestern area. So what we do is the planogram managers will, I, I'll send them a list of all the SKUs that I want to be considered and I'll rank them in priority. And then the planogram folks will help me put together the best visual representation of this order and priority for every class of stores. So every store is grouped into a priority, a geographic region, a store size, layout, and thank goodness these folks manage it better than I ever could. <laughs>
0: Yeah. So what are are these planogram? I'm not familiar with this. Sure.
1: So a planogram person is the one who will actually take the items, go to our, I guess, fake CVS store internally where we get to lay things out. But it's a store where customers can't come shop. But if we need to see what something looks like in real life, we can go there and adjust things in real life, Ah, uh, real time. So okay. our planogram person will build the layout and say, for example, you know, my PNG product should be on the left, my Unilever product should be on the right. This SKU should be higher up on the shelf than lower because the consumer expects to see this one more at eye level, where it expects to see this one lower, and um, the color scheme matches better this way. I'm, there's a lot of psychology wow, that goes yeah, into yeah. it. And these are the folks that are in charge of planning. I
0: can imagine this. So it's, this is a fake CVS store that you can use to sort of f- figure out what the layout should be, but it's not an actual store where someone can come in and shop.
1: Sure. I, I probably shouldn't have used the word fake, but it's, it's a representation right. of a real store. So we can keep, for example, a lot of times, you know how you see like a Christmas display that's already out? In Halloween, yeah. it kind of seems strange when you walk into a store when things are that early. But what we do in our stores, because we plan so far ahead for certain uh, for certain things like product launches or seasonal events, that we need an area within the company where we can just go set that up in real life and see for ourselves. So the reason we don't allow customers in is, first of all. The system isn't set up, so you can't actually buy anything. Right. And secondly, um, that would be a lot of interruption to the construction that's constantly going on.
0: No, no, that's totally understandable. I, I just Googled planogram on my laptop, and okay, that, that, that looks really interesting. And it's a great way to actually see what the actual thing will look like, and then you can sort of play with it. Um, Exactly. Yeah. And this sounds like this sounds like, I mean, you know, your role has so many flavors. So I'm guessing you would have different people on your team who are handling various aspects. Like Someone is actually doing the analysis for forecasting and someone else is looking at the uh, profit and loss statement for, let's say, the store in New York. Like, do you have different people on your team doing that?
1: I do. So they, I have people from every team that cross-functionally support me, Hmm. but ultimately at the end, I'm the one that holds responsibility for the category. So for example, um, if I see that, for some reason I ran a promotion and it's not doing very well. I can ask my analyst from the vendor side, or I can ask my folks from the pricing side to tell me, you know, what were the competing competition, competing promotions for my competitors in different areas. And they can help Put together a quick, um, quick summary like an analyst would for their managers, just so I can brief the VPs. Because I know that's the first question I'm going to get asked in the morning. And for example, um, when I prepare for my forecasts to present to the VP, I will touch base with my finance guy, who's going to tell me um, if there are any special events to look out for or any special points I should be prepared to talk to. Mm -hmm. And then that way it helps me hone in on the important areas. And then day-to-day, they tend to help me manage the rest.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So on a regular basis, can you give us an idea of what are the metrics that you track? And specifically in the context of your role as a category manager, what are the most important uh, numbers or figures or metrics that you're looking at?
1: So... For a day to day basis, I would say it's very short term. I look at things that happened during the week or even by the day for the whole chain. So definitely, the most important metric I would say is top line sales, and I look at that in terms of dollars, um, volume, and share. And I look at I look to see if the promotions that I have set up have done well. And if I need to change my strategy for the week going forward, I look to see whether my competitors or people on the blog have picked up anything unusual that I haven't noticed as well. Um, If I have a product launch, a new item that's going on, I keep very close tabs on every SKU in particular. And then I also answer any questions about special events. For example, um, you know, for Christmas, you know, what types of items i want to release for um like gift packages or if we're doing something mm. for super bowl things like that
0: right No, that makes a lot of sense and uh yeah i can imagine that planning for let's say christmas or halloween or all of these events happens like months in advance because uh because there's always something very interesting happening in all the stores at that time um it's interesting to hear that you guys plat, like look at numbers on a daily basis and are making changes on a weekly basis. So, cause that's pretty quick, right? Uh, do you, can you give us an idea of the kind of um, things that you might change on a week to week, week to week basis? Like you said that you might see that, Hey, you know, maybe this promotion is not working as well as I might have thought of. So what kind of tweaks would you make?
1: So for instance, if I realized that For some reason, I run the same promotion on the same items as Walgreen every single week. I'm going to try to stagger that a little bit. And I'm also going to try to run my promotions in a way that's not very predictable for a lot of the consumers who are very coupon and bargain driven to figure out. Just because I want to incentivize the right behavior, which is to upsell for those folks that actually want to make a purchase and not the ones who are trying to make money off my category. Um, That's one one major so thing can I look you, at.
0: Can you share an example maybe like a before and after? Oh, easy.
1: Yeah. So I had this one time where I think, I, I forget the brand, but let's let's pretend it was Speed Stick Deodorant, something like that. And they ran a pretty decent promotion where I think the item was like $4 and they had a $3 discount. So it was pretty much $1 off to the consumer at the end of it when you do all the math. Mm -hmm. But I think there is somebody called Crazy Coupon Mom online who is this very prolific, I think a corporation owned blogger who all she does all day is compile discounts from, you know, the Sunday paper, what you would see in the CVS circular everywhere and just stacks them all together. And it turns out that she found a way for people not only to get it for free, but to also like make one cent off the purchase or something ridiculous. (laughs) So when I looked at the data the next day, I get a very angry knock on my office saying, why are you X amount over your, like your planned budget for this item? We're completely sold out of stock in, you know, all these territories. I'm thinking, what is going on? And so I look at the distribution of sales. I think like, you know, maybe 10, uh, like 50% of people bought one item and then like 10% of people bought like two units of this the skew, And then I would see like a good 30% bought 10 or more units. And I'm thinking, what are you doing? You know, are you trying to open your own store? Like, why are you cleaning (laughs) out my shelves? It's it's a very interesting phenomenon that I I really, really like to try to avoid. And these are, these are some of the less than pleasant surprises that happen uh, pretty uh, more often than you would realize.
0: That's, that's, that's a great example. So I guess it it was because that blogger figured out a way in which you could actually make money off of the purchase that suddenly people were buying in huge volumes. And I, so I guess you you like changed the promotion then a little bit so that that was no longer the case. So that
1: was definitely a very difficult talk that I had with that supplier to say, um, what happened? Why didn't you see this coming? Because suppliers sponsor a lot of the coupons that they put out. Mm. And to figure out how to time it so that it never happens again. And uh, honestly, just to prevent it from happening with other suppliers going forward.
0: Right, right. Very interesting. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I would love to hear more stories. So can you share an example of a project that you worked on as a category manager that really stands out in your mind for whatever reason? Maybe it was very challenging or just a lot of fun to work on. I think...
1: So coming from an analyst perspective, I like looking at the numbers myself because I think they, they tell a story that we would sometimes otherwise miss. So for example, um, what my hair appliance um, SKU that I mentioned earlier, Curl Secret, um, I found out that within the chain, you, you know, most items do think it, they would sell well in, you know, major metropolitan areas that have a huge store layout. But I think only a very small number of stores were selling disproportionately high amounts of this item. And then the rest of the chain wasn't really selling any, or it didn't even carry the product. So I called those stores myself. And I called down to ask the store manager, just what on earth are you doing? Right. What am I missing here? And they told me, for example, um, the Las Vegas strip store sells a lot of our very high price items across all categories because people go to Vegas if they win money, which, you know, statistically somebody's going to win something. They go and they blow it as fast as they can on the strip. They want to impress all their friends. They just buy out everything on the shelves. So it's very difficult to pre- uh, to prevent the inventory demand and to forecast things like this, mm. because the people there are just completely out of control. Yeah, yeah. And another thing I didn't realize is close to you know cruise ship terminals and very high demand vacation spots, people who forget most of their the, their most important possessions that they feel are worth replacing no matter the cost. They tend to have sales of high price items too. So mm. it was figuring out that different categories and different items might have a completely different rationale for selling than something like, you know, a single stick of deodorant.
0: Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine that you guys must have access to so much of this odd consumer behavior, right, which is not very obvious in, at first, but then as you go deeper into the data, you're like, oh, okay, this is what it is. Um, is there anything like, are, do you remember instances where you came across similarly odd uh, consumer behavior?
1: Um, other instances. So I would say, so another great example is that sometimes the way we break up our business decisions, they don't quite make sense to the customer. So for example, um, I think we've all seen those as seen on TV infomercials where, you know, it's some crazy gadget that's that says, you know, as seen on TV, you can't buy this in store, but it's actually a specific company that manufactures these items and you can buy them in select stores depending on whether or not they want to carry it. So for the hair appliances category, usually what comes out is something that's really fashionable, really trendy, and to be quite honest, no one can really predict how well they're going to do until they hit the shelves. Excuse me. So for a lot of these appliance items, we actually keep them separate from the accessories that go with it. So for example, if it's some type of motorized hairbrush, the hair ties and like the shiny dangly things you might add to your hair are located somewhere else in the store. Hmm. And we found out that these are all high margin items that are very much correlated with each other in terms of uh, consumer sales. But if the consumer can't find one or the other, they tend not to buy either of them at all. So a lot of times what we do is we have to go through great lengths to make exceptions to have these items grouped together and to have them promoted together, even though internally um, cross-category sales, as we call it, tend to be pretty rare uh, just because they're managed by different people. Interesting. And so that's one major exception that we have to go to, I think, that that every category manager can talk to.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And I think that's where you might have to work with a number of other category managers in the company to make something like this happen. Exactly. Yeah,
1: Yeah. it takes a lot of a lot of very persuasive negotiating both (laughs) internally and externally.
0: Yeah. And I'm I'm guessing the other category manager is also similarly watching his or her metrics. So there has to be a benefit on both sides. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I would love to spend a little bit of time on just going through the typical stages in a project that you might work on just to see the kind of activities you might do. So pick any project that you worked on uh, recently, um, which is broad enough that it would it would give a good flavor for the, of the kind of things you would do and the kind of people you would interface with, so um and we can take a real or fictitious project. That's up to you.
1: Um, sure. So I'll give an example of a new item launch because this actually happened while I was um, with CVS. Mm-hmm. So the item was by Unilever. They're actually still on shelves today. They're called the dry spray deodorant. So just for some background, people typically buy like a stick or something wet and they rub it on their forearms. This is a type of item that has antiperspirant in it, but it comes in a little can. You can spray it on yourself. It's just a different form of delivery that's very popular in Europe, but for some reason has just not really taken hold in the U.S., prior to when it, when Unilever made a big push in I think like 2014. Okay. So this is basically a go-to-market strategy. So Unilever developed this technology in-house because they're really good at branding. They're really good at product design. They came to every major retailer and said, we have this new product. We think it's really great. It's going to revitalize our deodorants line, help boost growth. They'll, they'll tell you the world, right? <laughs> so then for CVS, um, what my team and I did was to figure out, does this make sense for our portfolio, given the products that we had made huge bets on and given the direction of the company and the direction of the category that we wanted? And the answer mm-hmm. was like, yeah, well, we don't want to miss out on a part of this. So then there was a lot of negotiating, well, you know, what items do you want to trade to put this item in or what do you propose? You know, what's in it for us? And then it's to figure out both that strategic and financial piece as well as, you know, what the items actually look at. So part of my role is being able to give feedback to the um, CBG companies to say, we need this type of messaging or this type of attribute from your product. Once that happens, it's to decide um, how the product should be promoted. So what advertising revenue is going to support it as well as how it's going to be um, promoted to the customer, like what channels, for example. Are they going to mail out coupons? Are we going to support it? Are they going to see web ads? Are they going to see commercials? Things like that. And to figure out when we were going to execute it. So CVS actually is really great at getting things onto the market first. So we actually got the um, Unilever Dry sprays to be on the shelves, I think, in like December 28 or something, like right after Christmas mm-hmm. of the year that it came out, which is insane because you think it's the middle of winter. Most, mm-hmm. most states are frozen over.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, like why are people buying this? But after it did, we, we managed through our promotional strategies and with the help of Unilever to, to stay number one in sales for drug, just because we got it out there so fast. So the a very long answer to your story. No, but this is, Typical for major product launches.
0: This is actually very, very interesting. So I, I have a couple of follow up questions. So one, I'm guessing that when the CPG company comes to you, you're primarily interfacing with the brand manager, I guess, at the CPG company. It's not actually the brand manager. It's the sales team
1: person, or sometimes they would call them the uh, the account manager.
0: Oh, I so see.
1: Okay. Brand managers, I believe, tend to face more internally, and they develop more of the innate product strategy and the sales team are the ones that convey it but they have a less deep understanding of the whys rather than the how to make it happen.
0: Gotcha, gotcha, yeah. So there there will be some people dedicated to working with CVS at Unilever in this case who are then working with you to figure this out. Yes, exactly. Okay. And, and you said that, uh, so let's say when it comes to things like advertising and the messaging, et cetera, et cetera, um, one, you have to figure out whether it makes sense for you or not. Uh, so it, it, that's a great point because I'm guessing that CVS itself has a certain uh, image and a certain positioning in the market. And then Unilever might come in with some kind of product. So ha- how is that? How do you bring the two together? Is is it CVS's branding that goes out? Is it Unilever's? Is it some kind of a mishmash? That's an excellent question.
1: So one thing at CVS that we really try to keep in mind is we want the consumer to remember that you bought it at CVS. Hmm. So one thing that my um, VP and my senior directors always told me was to say, the supplier needs to convey a direct benefit to CVS consumers and not to their own consumers so for example we might say if you're offering a promotion for a dollar off like a cpg product for all of our competitors you need to make it better for us either a dollar off plus you know a free sample of something or a dollar off plus you know an extra care coupon because if you don't do that then I don't see the point of building your business at the expense of mine. So
0: it it does take a
1: little creativity. And I think that depends on the nature of the product and the category.
0: Right, right, right. So so both the companies have to work together to make sure that it makes sense. But in, in this case, Unilever has to put in the effort so that finally, the final product that's being sold or the final packet, so to say, that's being sold through CVS aligns well with the CVS strategy, at least for that category.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So any vendor, big or small, I mean, the smaller vendors might not have the resources of the larger ones, but they can work with us more long term or um, be more flexible when we have more requests for them down the road. Right. Exactly.
0: Right. And uh, I mean, you know, CVS is a huge company, so I'm sure that you guys have a lot of um, sort of say in things. But I'm guessing that it, are these kind of negotiations also very time sensitive because, Unilever at the same time will be in negotiations, not just with CVS, but Walgreens and Target and Walmart and whoever else. So does that at all come into play? Oh, exactly. Uh, Very much so.
1: So when it's a category with commodities or if it's a very seasonal one, for example, the candy category at Halloween, you need to really just hash out these negotiations um, and make sure you have enough time to get push the product out to the shelves or else all the work you do is not going to matter because your competitors are going to their customers are going to buy you right, out right. very quickly. So I think time is definitely of the essence and it matters more depending on special situations in the category. Yeah. Right.
0: I mean, how quickly have you been through one of these? Um, so,
1: I mean, Sometimes it's, you're not leaving the office until you figure it out, which is <laughs> yeah. pretty extreme situation. Yeah. Um, I, I think it, the answer is, it just, it depends on what the
0: situation is and whether or not there's a crisis to mm-hmm.
1: uh, focus on.
0: But like, I would imagine that something like this will take at least a few weeks, if not a few months. But correct me if I'm wrong.
1: I think these things tend to happen on, uh, so if it's a long term project, maybe on a week to a monthly schedule makes sense. But if it's a a last second emergency, then it happens on an hourly to a daily basis.
0: Oh, really? Like Unilever can come to you tomorrow and you have the product on CVS shelves within just a few days? Um, yeah, so it also depends on obviously our ability
1: to move internally. But yeah. so at CVS, a lot of my suppliers actually lived locally, and they had the, their sales teams had offices either in our building or just right down the street. And the the remainder of my suppliers would fly in and have appointments with me either on a weekly, monthly, sometimes annual schedule. Gotcha. And I would spend a good forty hours a week at least in negotiations with the suppliers on
0: average. And it's also it's also cool to know that you're the one who's doing the negotiations like do you have any other expert negotiators with you helping you out
1: um, sometimes, so if I'm negotiating a uh, pain point on price, for example, I'll have the director of pricing in the office to mm. uh, talk with me because they can fill in some more gaps when I talk to right. the suppliers. And similarly, the suppliers, if it's a very big product launch or a strategic issue, sometimes they might bring in their own
0: executives as well. Right. Okay. Makes sense. So, uh this is great, by the way, Ariel, I'm sorry if I'm asking a lot of questions, but what you, what you do sounds so interesting that I, I can't help myself. Um, coming to some of the more sort of then qualitative aspects of your role then, so you are one of the many category managers at CBS, or, or you were when you were still at the company. Uh, generally, how are the category managers, um, like how would you determine how successful a certain CM is at his or her role? So the way that the company itself decides
1: is by specific numerical metrics and by some, um, I guess, some of the softer ones. So for example, obviously hitting your sales margin, revenue, um, cost targets, these are all extremely important. And I think the financial ones make up the, the lion's share of it. Mm. I think another one is for the um, CM's vision. So I think if you have someone who's really afraid of change or someone who just really feels out of their element, I think it's pretty fair to say that that person might be seen as less successful as someone who takes a lot of bold risks and makes them work. Um, So I think, so these come down to, like any other company, you know, how the rest of the team feels about them, how easy they are to work with, how great of an understanding do they have between the relationships of different departments so Mm -hmm. for example how they can make finance work together with promotions and with inventory and not to just you know set off roadblocks that
0: that fire along the way right okay and the cm's vision for that category is very interesting um if 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 this is not something confidential could you share what your vision for let's say one of the three categories that you owned was
1: oh yeah simple So hosiery, for example, um, when I first started there at CVS, I went to one of the local stores, one, you know, that we visit all the time and I literally could not find my own category in the store and neither (laughs) could the cashier, which I thought this is not a good sign that it takes us 10 minutes and two walkthroughs and we still didn't see it because I know it it, it was there from the data we had. Mm -hmm. So, What I did when I was there was to completely transform the branding. And I worked with the store brand team and product design. So the vision was to say, all right, so if this item is so irrelevant to the consumer that it's kind of an afterthought, um, how do we bring it alive? So what we did was to say, what people want here is it's apparel, right? So having the feeling of, you know, you're beautiful and this is an upscale Product at a really great price. And, and in a way that's convenient for you, I think really resonated with the consumer. So what I did was um, work with a team to arrange photo shoots with models so that we could completely redesign the look of the product, which is how it looks on the shelves today. So no more like polka dot box or no more like pantyhose, like stuffed together in this like little plastic egg that <laughs> you used to see when you're a kid. But now it's the type of thing you would find in a department store. And also, um, another thing we did was to bring in items that people actually want. So nowadays, look around anywhere, especially in San Francisco, half the women are wearing leggings of some kind. So we brought those into the store because they never used to exist. We took out, you know, the different variations of beige and nude and colors I've never even heard of. And we also added in items that um, make sense to people that are a little bit less like myself. For example, we have a lot of aging baby boomers and a lot of them have more health needs. So we put in diabetic socks there, Mm -hmm. which turned out to be a great hit because a lot of frequent travelers like to have really comfortable, you know, medically approved devices to wear because they think it feels better than what they could pick up at, you know, like the local sports authority. So, um, these are the, the classic examples of, um, what we did to
0: revitalize a category. No, oh, I love it, and it's a, this sounds really exciting because I'm sure when you're going through that process of figuring out what should this category be or what it could be inside of CVS, that's a fairly creative exercise. And uh, if it actually works, that must be very gratifying. Yeah, this is considered a very large project. By the <laughs> I'm way, sure it was. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, in your point of view, what do you think are the most interesting aspects of this job? Like, let's say someone comes to you and says, hey, Ariel, tell me why I should become a category manager in CBS or a similar company? What would you say?
1: Well, for me personally, I've always had this like fantasy where if I could turn my love of retail and shopping into a career, that would just be ridiculous. And it happened, you know, as a category manager, because my main job is to run a company, but also to be aware of how to make it better. So I'm constantly on the prowl looking at what competitors are doing, what trends are going on in the market, and it's something honestly that I I do regardless of whether or not I'm on the job. So I think that's the biggest one. If you love retail, you're going to love being a CM. Mm. Another thing is coming from the psych and the neuro background. I really like seeing how people think and not just in the lab but in an applied sense, you know. Here is a stimulus we provide to a situation, how do the subjects there respond in real life and real time? This isn't a game anymore. This is this is happening, you know, in reality. And I think these are, are the two most meaningful aspects for me for this role.
0: Yeah. Are there any aspects about this role that you do not like?
1: Hmm. Well, like I mentioned before, I spent 40 hours a week on average, um, working with uh, my partners, which means I have to carve out the extra time to actually implement the things we've decided on. Mm -hmm. So don't get me wrong. Being able to partner with like the biggest brands in CPG apparel, like the, these are the top brands in their industries is Very, very exciting, and it's great to have the benefit of all of their business intelligence and product strategy without actually having to be the one to develop it. But I think um, going through internal channels, because CVS has to make sure that I'm not, you know, our CMs aren't just going wild with with reckless abandon. There are a lot of um, uh, checks and balances to be had, and I think some of those are um, a bit more work than I would have anticipated going into the role
0: right so just a lot of process that has to be followed in a lot of yeah things. I guess yeah.
1: To, to summarize it there's a lot of process and not enough hours in the day
0: yeah yeah yeah. I mean I guess on a in any day on any typical day are you for the most part in meetings or or I do you get time to work on your own also Yes, this
1: is a very meeting-heavy type of... I, I would say it's more of a collaborative-heavy type of approach. Hmm. So it's actually very rare that I would even pull my own data. So like, I use SQL and MicroStrategy just fine, but in most cases, it's more efficient to designate some analysts to do it and right. just give me you know
0: the two-second rundown. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, have you found any common mistakes that people tend to make in this role? Or... Yeah, actually,
1: yeah. Yeah, I think um, some of the ones that I see are um, being resistant to change, I think is a really big one because um, retail is one of those categories where uh, change is inevitable. It's just hard to predict where it is. So sometimes it feels like the safe thing is to play it safe, but that's actually just the easy misconception to have. I think another thing that is detrimental is that there are some folks – Who Like if you take a finance class, they'll tell you people are rational. They'll always go with the best cost-benefit decision. And that's just not how retail works because people are entirely irrational. Mm. And a lot of the things they do don't make sense. And you have to appeal to the the irrational part of your consumer. And I think another thing is when um, I guess – I think those would be the two big ones. And the, the last thing would probably be just lack of experience, I think. I mean, going into the role, I certainly didn't have a lot of the background for why we did things the way we did mm-hmm. and um, not taking the time and effort to get caught up on that, I think um, kind of slows people down a bit.
0: Yeah, so I guess you have to learn a lot across a wide range of categories or areas because your role is pretty broad. Um Are there any, can you share an example of a stressful situation that you might have run into in this role? Something that comes to mind? Well, I guess the example that you shared where the the product actually, buying that product actually helped consumers make money. That must have been a stressful time for you. I think a stressful
1: situation would be if there's a product that we took a big bet on, for example, like a high price premium product and it just doesn't sell, it becomes a flop. Hmm. Then a lot of the projections I have for the year are based on that one product. So then the, this happens to all CMs. You know we're scrambling a bit to figure out how to make it work. So for example, I think when uh, you know, if, if you sell something like um, seasonal like candy or you sell like Valentine's Day trinkets, I'm sure they get this all the time. If something doesn't sell, you incur a cost to either sell it at a discount to the consumer or to send it back to the manufacturer. Hmm. So one, you have lost sales and two, you have to pay more than you thought to get that markdown, as we call it. Yeah. So a lot of the emergency comes to how do we get rid of it quickly and what do we put in its place? And it's kind of hard to mobilize somebody else at the last minute. I would say that yeah. is a very, very stressful situation.
0: But I guess, like, do you guys try and do a pilot, so to say, in the beginning, just to see what the reaction would be before a full-scale rollout?
1: Um, So it depends on the product. So if it's a major product release, like the Unilever dry sprays I have, um the supplier usually does a lot of testing but mm. in most cases for retail especially if it's like one or two SKUs or just a small idea we have we might do some pilots in a few small stores but if time is of the essence which it usually is there there just may not be a way you have you, you kind of have to be all or nothing in many of the
0: decisions we make gotcha gotcha okay and in terms of the typical career path for this role is it um, like as once you're category manager, do you, do you then just gradually grow into the director and the VP roles that you described or um, or anything else?
1: I think what most CMs aspire to is to first get into the role and then to become more senior and to get more direct reports and to get um, more revenue under their belts hmm. and also probably to gun for like VP, senior VP. I can only imagine
0: Oh, okay all right so and that's within your company uh if you were to leave the company let's say you did not want to do category management anymore for whatever reason uh what what are your options look like outside of that particular company
1: i think most people who are cms actually like to stay cms and i think transitions incur a cost in that you have to learn a new company's systems and strategy so mm. i I think it does happen, but not as often as you might predict for that reason. And I think some of the roles that people can do are obviously being a category manager for either a different type of industry, different type of retailer, things like that. Um, They could go into um, retail consulting, but I think since this is more of a sales role that I haven't seen that happen too often. Or sometimes they might just switch and go to the supplier side, and they build oh, really right. great relationships that way because they already know everybody from the, um, you know, the the retailers end. That's so that's I've yeah. I've seen that happen, and they've been great people
0: to work with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I just have a few last questions from the point of view of someone who might be interested in exploring category management as a career. So, um, mm-hmm. if if let's say you were to replace yourself uh, with someone else what are the key qualities that you would look for in them?
1: I think the number one thing I would look for is passion and enthusiasm for retail and merchandising. So if you have someone who just isn't really that into the role and just thinks that they can, you know, balance the P&L, just keep the shelf stacked, that's not going to be somebody who's going to be particularly successful. So I think somebody who is really gung-ho and, just loves the industry, is a great start. Mm-hmm. I think secondly, it's somebody who has any type of connection to a retail or product development would go a long way just because they're, you have more of the instinct there to help guide you when you're learning the role. And I think lastly, it's somebody who is not scared away of the very meeting-centric type of focus mm-hmm. or isn't afraid to deal with, you know, like, gosh, like two dozen vendors that are constantly calling you and, you know, having appointments with everyone internally and trying to balance a lot of moving pieces. I think these would be, um, the key things that I look for.
0: Yeah. I mean, just... Hearing what you've said in the last uh, hour on this, it's clear that uh, being able to work with a lot of people and managing all of these relationships is absolutely key, both internally and externally, because across the three categories and all the products and SKUs, I'm guessing you're working with at least like 10, 20 different partners, and then you have all the stakeholders internally. So it's a lot of different people that you have to manage.
1: Yeah, I actually tried counting them the other day, just, you know, off the top of my head. And I'm pretty sure I missed at least a good third of them. So, yes, I
0: would agree. Exactly. And then, of course, there's the usual, like, you have to be uh, very data oriented, uh, being able to do negotiations and all of these skills. Um, Oh, I should add, it's
1: actually very important not to just be able to generate the data, but to take away the key points from it. So the way that if you're an analyst... And you think about how you would prepare data for your VP. And they're just like, tell me the key things I need to know in two minutes and move on. You kind of need to do that for yourself. And I think that's a very important skill that I learned in this role. Absolutely.
0: Okay. And um, have have there been any instances that some category manager, either you or some other person, really struck you as, wow, he or she is really awesome at their role?
1: I think the ones that um, I had the most respect for were not only the ones that knew what they were doing and did it well, but the ones who took the time to mentor others because it's really easy to um, just do a great job and keep it to yourself, but to share the knowledge and not be afraid to benefit someone else's category because we're all essentially graded against each other at the end of the day. Hmm. I think to take the lessons learned, I think speeds up the process for a lot of people. And um, also it just shows that they're collaborative not only when they need to be but um in ways that they can be
0: yeah it's actually but it's so hard to find people who are good mentors but you're right like if someone who is not only willing to do the best at his or her job but also train others to do be excellent in their jobs also um Mm -hmm. uh, if if let's say someone is uh You know, listens to your episode and they're like, Hey, you know, I really like this and I want to try it out, or I I want to assess in some way whether I would enjoy being a category manager or not. Is there a way to do that? That's tough. I would say the best thing to do is I
1: used to go to LinkedIn and just find my counterparts at different companies and ask them, Hey, do you mind if i do you mind if I just chat with you for a while? because I want to see what you think about this issue. And most people are pretty happy to do it. Uh, you know, they might not be able to give you details, but it would sound a lot like this podcast. Hmm. And I think, Another way to do it is to look up a day in the life of a CM for different companies. So I think I saw something online about Tesco, which is a supermarket in Europe. And I did it mainly to see the differences and similarities between our roles. And I found that we actually had a lot in common. So I think reading people's profiles of what they say
0: would be immensely helpful as well. So is is this something that Tesco does that they publish, you know, just like general reading online, like day in the life of a CM? Somebody just went and interviewed a CM and asked them, "Okay, tell
1: us what it's like if I want to be in this career. Yeah.
0: Oh, nice. Okay, so that's something that people can Google. Okay. Um, Actually, any other resources that you would like to recommend for anyone who's interested in this role? Um, There's none that I can think of, only because
1: when I was preparing to interview for this role back in the day, I actually didn't find that much information. I think a lot of it comes down to just... um, Just thinking up strange situations you see in real life. For example, I went to the store, all the shelves are empty. If I were the CM, what would I do right now at this moment?
0: Things like that. Mm. Yeah, and if you can sort of put yourself in the position of an actual CM and think about how you would solve those problems if you were actually the CM, that's a good litmus test to see if you would enjoy the role or not. Exactly. And I think learning about
1: the internal company culture matters a lot, too, because some companies are very open to new ideas. Some have very little influence from their VPs on a day to day basis. I think these also influence um, people's satisfactions in, within their company. Right. right.
0: Um, generally, uh, if people have to apply for the role, either at CVS or some other company, what is the best way to apply? Um, So, typically in any company, I think
1: the best way is to go through a channel for someone that you know. But I think, especially if you already have some type of retail background, um, most companies are really struggling to find CMs that they think can do the job. So, I don't think it would hurt to just look through the structure because you can find this easily on LinkedIn or on a company supplier website um, because they'll have the contacts for the CMs and just contact people and say, hey, can we have a chat first and ask them you know, after you decide it might be a good fit, just ask them
0: directly. I don't think it would hurt. So, you know, that's a, that's a very good point. You brought it up a couple of times that, you know, how reaching out to other people who are already in that industry or in that role, talking to them either about potential openings or just to, just to chat to understand what the role is about is a great way mm-hmm. to learn if it's a good fit. Um, how do you suggest someone should word that initial interaction? Because a lot of times, you know, you might not hear back. So how, what do you suggest someone should include in that initial email or message?
1: I think one great way is if you know someone that knows of somebody, you can get an mm. introduction. That's a great way. I found that either emailing people directly or sending a LinkedIn message has done pretty well for me. And I think it's important to keep in mind that since this is a role that deals with so many supplier partners, if you get intimidated just by, you know, potential cold networking, then this might not be a great role simply because there's a lot of rejection that comes in with this industry. And so I think this is actually very good training in the beginning Hmm. when you're building your network to get used (laughs) to the process.
0: Yeah, and figure out what works for you, right? Because sometimes something might work for you, sometimes something might not. Um, Another related question is that, is there anything you recommend uh, candidates should try and highlight Either in these interactions or even in their resume and application, which will help them stand out? I think key things that I personally would look for is any type of PL management
1: or financial management because a company needs to know that you understand the metrics and how they're interrelated. I think any retail experience would be really great. Even if you were just a cashier at a store, a lot of CMs actually started mm-hmm. out that way, mm-hmm. at least at CVS. I think another thing is. Um, Um, The ability to do analytics or to be able to synthesize the key takeaways from things like Tableau, Salesforce, Nielsen, IRI, things like that.
0: Yeah. Okay. And so a quick related question on that is that let's say someone comes from a very different background. Let's say they were in, I don't know, uh, technology, right? Like They were like a software developer for a tech firm. So nothing to do with financial management or retail, uh, but they are interested in this how do you recommend they can try and showcase that retail interest? Like, is there something they could do on the side or volunteer somewhere which would help them get that experience? Well, I think if they come from a tech
1: background, for example, and they were able to work on some retail or some sales types of projects within their own company, I think that would go a long way in bridging the gap. And I think another thing they can do is look for companies that specialize in um, technology sales. For example, if you wanted to be a CM, it might make more sense to try and shoot for Amazon because they sell a lot of electronics versus CVS because we're right. known more for CPG. So I think knowing your target is also a very key here.
0: That's a great point because then, yeah, if you have a tech background, you will have, you will be able to understand your product much better if let's say you're selling some electronics on Amazon. So yeah, that's a good point. Okay. All right, Ariel, this was really, really helpful. Is there any other advice you'd like to share with listeners? Um, not much, except good luck. And I hope this is informative.
1: Um, and retail is really fun. I love it. So I hope some of your listeners will,
0: too. I hope so, too. All right. Thank you, Ariel. And have a good rest of the weekend. All right. Thanks. You too, Sonali. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. So that was Ariel on category management in retail. I really hope you enjoyed today's discussion. And if you enjoyed it as much as I did, you should subscribe to the podcast. Simply go to the website at www.learneducatediscover.com where you'll find all the previous episodes, today's episode, and you can subscribe to the podcast on either iTunes for all Apple users or Stitcher and SoundCloud for Android users. Of course, if you have any questions at all for Ariel or for me, you can email us at hello at com or tweet at us at led underscore curator. You can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash learn educate discover. All right, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening and for your time. And until the next one, bye-bye.